In the back of my mind, Christian life was a treadmill. We just slowly turn the treadmill up. Crisis is not our enemy. In fact, nothing good happens without crisis. We see people living in a kind of way that we would like to follow, charting a kind of route. I guess I'd gone from worshipping the waves that God made to worshipping the God who made the waves, and surely that's got to be so much more inspiring. Hey guys, welcome to the Ansons Podcast. If you also listen to the Ransomed Heart Podcast, you'll know that there was a four-part series on envy that we aired earlier in the year. And we wanted to give some thought to what the opposite of envy actually looks like, and that is the underplayed discipline of admiration. Yeah, so we invited a couple of friends and coworkers into the studio and gave them the prompt of bringing some people that they admire, that they emulate. And it was a really revealing process. I think I was curious to see what other people were thinking and what came to mind for them. Um, but it ended up being a really good conversation around the difference between someone you admire versus someone that has things about them that you would want to cultivate yourself. Fun day today. We have two friends and colleagues though I'm not sure if I can't use a colleague, Justin, in the studio today. We've got John Dale, who has appeared on the podcast before, and then also uh, the most secretive member of the Ansons team, Justin Luke Hosevich. Uh, you can find him on Instagram, at Luke Hosevich, who runs our social and does some technology stuff. Is that L-U-K-H? It's actually <laughs> you just pronounced make it up. Luke's a savage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a very phonetic name. I used also my backcountry ski sensei. And we're in the studio today to talk about a concept called admiration. If you also follow the Ransomed Heart podcast, you'll know that earlier in the summer we did a series on envy. And envy comes from the Latin and vitere of to look upon with malice. Admiration um, comes from ad mirare and simply to wonder or to look upon with wonder. So it sits across from envy on kind of the poles of possible interaction. And we're going to talk about today that it's actually a really important metric for the wellness of a person's soul and a really helpful thing to cultivate in your maturity as a young man. But Justin, John, thanks for coming on. Welcome to the podcast. It's good thanks. to be here. So kicking off, I mean, that what we told you guys about this podcast was to bring to the table some thoughts on men and women living, dead, historical, notable, obscure, just people that are in your mind somewhere, in your world somewhere, that either you admire something of their lives or you want to emulate something of what they they bring to the world. I think that's a big shift for me in, in the thought because there, there are people that I admire but don't particularly want to emulate if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, like my example would be Stephen Colbert. I I really love him and his brilliance and his wit and his ability to turn a phrase. And I there's nothing about necessarily who he is that I feel like I have to be. I can just admire him. So maybe that's why it's on the opposite of envy because I, I don't look at his talents and say, I don't have them, therefore he shouldn't. But I also don't look at them and go, 
he has them, therefore I also should. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a, oh, I admire him, but I don't necessarily emulate him. So uh, those are some categories to be thinking about as we talk about these guys. But when we pitched you the question, um, who came to mind? This this was sort of fun for me because I didn't have anybody come to mind. I mean, you know, I, I, I kind of racked my brain and thought, you know, what are the books that I've read? And I was like, well, this should be easy. And then I was like, well, shoot, it's not. You know, I I seem to have a list of 100 people, but then nobody came to mind. And so I was talking to my wife, Christine, and she kind of kickstarted that process into, it just kickstarted it, you know? And, And a couple came to mind and I was like, okay, this now... Now it's really interesting, but what what was the the part of that for me that I found myself going to is why like there's a long list of people, um, but there's a shorter list that I think is more important, and it's this emulation thing that you talked about, Sam. That okay, there's a lot of people that I admire, but there's a lot of them, a lot of parts of that that I don't necessarily care to emulate. And so, should I throw one out there for you? I want to, but I okay. want to just comment really quick okay. first because it's so huge. Because yeah. I think I identified with the same thing even when we were conceiving of what's important for a young man's heart. And right. We were like, admiration is actually an important thing. And we, yeah. and we want to explore why. But we had to build these lists ourselves. And I think it's amazing. I think that the fact that we don't have lists of people that we actually want to be like is sort of emblematic of our isolation, Hmm. because we don't live in a culture that really celebrates lineage. We celebrate eccentricity of the person, they came from nowhere, they're an isolated genius, now they're Jeff Bezos and they founded Amazon, kind of a thing. And that's, that's fine as long as you don't buy into that myth, because what we actually are meant to participate in is these lines, these lineages where we see people living in a kind of way that we would like to follow, charting a kind of route. And so I just want to highlight, yeah, that, yeah these lists are very hard to make, and that it's actually a kind of discipline to go out and find them. So to, to add one thing to that, I wonder if part of the difference is that it has to do with the age we are. Not the age we are in, but the age we are. Because when I was 12, 13, 14, I could rattle off my heroes. Yeah. I could rattle off the sports stars or the people on TV or the people that had done famous things. And there's something about, uh, for lack of a better term, like real life hitting you uh, when you realize, okay, probably not going to be playing in the NBA, may not end up uh, you know, ending up going to the moon. And don't have the force, so Obi-Wan's <laughs> off the table. <laughs> right, but there's, the table. there's almost like this disillusion. And so to, to now sit there and say, okay, who is it that I admire? It's a different set of categories than maybe we had 10 years ago. Yeah, and it's interesting to look at why you admire them. And that was for me, you know, I had all these names come to mind and and I thought, well, what is it about that? And And I found some interesting you know, correlations between a couple of the people that I put on my list. So the first one is a guy by the name of John Wesley Powell. Do you guys know that name? 
No, nope. I've seen no, John Wesley's and I know Powell's, but I've, not, that, I, not that particular seen, combination. of John Wesley. I've, I've, I've seen blank stares. So th- this was um, sort of some firsthand experience mixed in with this story, but I'm going to take you back to 1590, I believe it was, the year 1590. So America was very young. And the Spanish were on an expedition. I think it was a military expedition. And they were the first Europeans to see the Grand Canyon. And Native Americans have been living in, around, in the walls of the Grand Canyon for thousands of years. But this was like the first outside person to see the Grand Canyon. And they walked along the rim for three days. And then they were like, you know, well, we can't get down that. And they went back and walked the other way, couldn't get down it. And so they basically gave up and walked away. 300 years later, in the, in the mid-1800s, it had still, like, if you saw maps of the United States, basically the entire southwestern part of the United States just said unknown. And this was like, this is like 150 years ago from when we're talking, which is just mind-blowing for, for me. And so, so this guy, John Wesley Powell, he was a, uh, used to be a major in the military, said, I'm going to go through the, I'm going to go into the Grand Canyon and I'm going to explore it. And it was 300 years after the first European had actually seen this. And for me, this, this comes back to this emulation thing, Sam. Like I, I, I thought about this a lot. Last year I went through the Grand Canyon on a raft, very little whitewater experience. And at the same time, I had more whitewater experience than probably all of these 10 guys combined that went through it for the first time in 1869. No white person had ever been down there. Nobody experienced white water. And they just get on a boat in Northern Utah and say, we know this river comes out here, hundreds of miles or a thousand miles, and we're gonna do it. And like no specialized boats, they had these things made in Chicago. They get on them and just this epic adventure happens. And some of them come out on the other side of it, which is a whole nother story. And, and for me, I think this, this emulation, which I don't know whether or not that I have it, but I sure want to. And I just ask myself the question, that, that, that fear of the unknown, would I answer that call of, I have no idea what's, I mean, there could have been waterfalls a thousand foot you know, deep and no way to get around them, and you can't go back upstream, and you can't get out of the Grand Canyon. It's 5,000 feet deep. They have no clue what's down there. And yet these guys say, yeah, sign me up. Of the 10, only four of them were paid. The others were volunteers. They get in four boats. One of them sinks pretty much right away. Then they lose another, another down to two, and then they just go for it. And it's just incredible. Yeah, that's epic. It, yeah, totally. Presumably Lake Powell ends up named after this guy. Yes, which is right, totally at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And that's where they stop, essentially, is where the Colorado, as it's now called, um, and the Virgin River, the confluence of those, which is now underwater in Lake Powell. That was the, the end of the expedition. That's good. Let me, let me also throw out that this guy, John Wesley Powell, had one arm. Right? Oh, like Lord Nelson. <laughs> like rowing boats through the Grand Canyon. Hundreds of miles from Utah where they start. The, the big part of the Grand Canyon is just over 200 miles. And the whitewater. So I'm down there last year and thinking, this is, this is insane. 
So whitewater rapids are, are basically on a scale of like zero to five. Well, when you get into the big desert whitewater, it goes on a scale of zero to 10. And just because these the, the rapids are huge, and for these guys to have no clue what's down there and to say, yeah, sign me up, I'll go find out. Just that that spirit of of adventure and going into the unknown. I mean, I, I felt unprepared, but yet at the same time, as I mentioned, was way more prepared than these guys were. And it just, it blows me away. Yeah, I love that nature of man and humanity and our, uh, just, uh, what was it in the Truman show that there is the line, like everywhere has been explored. Like you don't get to explore anywhere anymore in the world. And just the, the crushing feeling of that. And I remember when, uh, I don't know if it was NASA or somebody was putting out like the, this form on the internet of who wants to go on the one way trip to Mars. Cause we're going to try right. and make that happen. And over 200,000 people signed up. Wow. Like there's just something of it's it's the Grand Canyon of now, but there's still that. I don't know. I mean, two hundred thousand people sounds like a lot when you compare it to the what? How many people on the planet today? How many billion? Million? Billion? Seven? Seven million? Seven More than no, a million. It's a billion. We hit six billion in 2013. Okay, <laughs> I shouldn't. So, of, of all of the billions of people on the planet, like that is a tiny fraction, and there's something of you that wants to say. I hope that that small percentage is the kind of person I am. Not that I want to leave my family and go to Mars necessarily, but that that choice to be brave is, yeah, I love that. I can't even comprehend. I mean, yeah, we're, we're almost, we're talking about the same thing, like to go into the unknown, maybe to never come back and to leave my family. These guys were volunteers. Like what? I mean, it's one thing to sign up for an epic adventure and to say, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be insane. But at the same time, every one of those I've signed up for, I'm pretty sure is going to come back for. And, and these guys, I, I don't know. I'm going to get on a boat. And this, the expedition, I think it was, it was 10 months, I think is what they signed up for. So they had 10 months of food. That first boat that sank had a lot of the provisions on it. And then the second one, they lost more. And guys departed. One guy left left and hiked out. He knew he could get out, I think, and ended up living with some Native Americans. And then towards the end of it, I, th- I want to say it was like nine months into eight months, something like that. These three guys get out at a point now called Separation Point or Separation Canyon. And they start hiking out. They were never seen again. Like they had just given up. These rapids were insane. They had been losing boats. They're done. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go to my family. And they think they were either, they were, well, they were killed by somebody. And they, I mean, they didn't get raptured. There's right. There's a debate whether it was Mormon settlers who were, there was just all kinds of stories or whether it was Native Americans. And so it just incredible. And so we actually, when I was in there last year, about this time last year, we stopped and got out at the Separation Canyon. And I just looked up this, this wash that they, these guys walked like, I'm done. I'm going that way. And to, and, and here's the crazy part, because they didn't know, I mean, they sort of knew where they were, but they didn't know what was at the end of this. They were two days from being done with the rapids of the Grand Canyon. They had gone eight or nine months or something, two days from the end of it. 
Yeah, I mean, if we, we make jokes like if I was a youth pastor, there's, just, there's so, a lesson. There. There's, there's a lesson. There's, <laughs> I don't never know. know when you you're... know, I just it's really hard to find something about sticking through something. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thinking immediately of the advertisement that Shackleton, Shackleton's expedition to the South, South Pole put South out. Pole. You know, like, and all of the men that flocked to an advertisement saying, you know, harsh environments, unlikely to survive starvation almost guaranteed and people certainty of honor upon return exactly like (laughs) all the people that signed up i love that john how about you what what came who who came to mind so i'm gonna go a completely different direction yeah um there is a gentleman a guy in england by the name of jerry marshall who whose autobiography i read and he's a fascinating guy contemporary to my parents and what i love about his story is that he consistently found ways to tie together the big issues in the world that he felt called to with business enterprises as an example he spent a lot of time in israel and in the west bank and wanted to find a way to help in reconciliation efforts and in providing opportunity, particularly for the Palestinians. And so he actually opened a call center in Jerusalem where he was able to employ Palestinians in the global economy because you have this group of people who had a really hard time finding any kind of work because of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. And so to go in and actually build a business around how do I how do I solve how do I help solve this social issue at a time when I think a lot of people spent a lot of time talking about it a lot of time debating the different sides of the issues if instead to say look there are there are real people who need jobs but aren't don't have access to jobs they do not have a way to provide for their family how how could I how could I create something that would provide that? And it was just really challenging to me personally um, to begin to look at the things that I'm doing and the projects I'm involved in to say, how can I begin to just have, to take a larger view, to say, what, what are the things in this world that I think that God is interested in, that he is compelling me towards, and how can I bring my gifts and talents to address those situations. Mm. And, and I think p- prior to reading that book, I would never have thought about some global issue on the other side of the world and thought that I might, might be able to make an impact other than in swaying people's opinion. Um, and so that, that was, that's an example of, of someone who has deliberately done something, risked time, money, capital in order to have an impact on people that he that there's not an opportunity for direct benefit for him so good i like there's the part of me that goes i i think i've heard of stories where people use their quote-unquote giftings for god or humanitarianism before and there's almost something in me that makes an assumption that's going to be half-hearted of like, yeah, I can use these, but really, 
those those skills in business would be better used somewhere else. Though you're doing a really good thing using them here. And like I'm kind of I'm kind of naming this in myself even as I'm listening. And what's what I love about that story is that actually there's more there's more risk and there's more trueness to what the calling is to play it out in a way that is totally countercultural for what you think you should be using it. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that I noticed and then I also that is visible in your story to Justin is this thing of it's deeply personal, like you, John, have gifting with business and entrepreneurship and that those things are kind of are in your area and for your soul to be very, for your heart to be very alive, it's going to look like uh, the cultivation of that gifting. And I think it's a point that I wanted to raise earlier is that when it comes to admiration, almost any area where you are called to work or you carry a kind of gifting, it's actually very important, although it's super difficult, I find, to find someone that you admire. And I'm, I'm really interested in this when I talk to, you know, friends who are artists. And when I ask them, what artists do you love? Not just look at their work and go, that's quality, or not just kind of view them as inspiration, but who are the people whose life you could stand living? Because you're also, you're walking into that discipline. And maybe you'll be the first person to ever have this kind of work-life balance and your creativity alive, but probably not. And it will be helpful for you to find someone. And I find kind of over and over again, that the people who are doing really well actually have a list of people that they've had that they've worked to put together and that people who are having a more difficult time are actually is because they're isolated and they can't name and so i just think you know to jump in in response and even to offer so artists i also one more point is that i think that there's kind of a large scale, like I admire the JMW Turners of history, but not really because the great English painter, JMW Turner, who everybody loves, was also kind of a D. Wait, I don't love him. Who is he? Well, you know, you know, you know his work. Role in the art world, we uh, could say. Oh, 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 okay. Okay. Well, we could just say that, you know, like our friend Mark Evans, you know, he'll sit in front of JMW Turner's paintings on occasion and just cry mm-hmm. being impacted by, you know, this guy who predated the Impressionists by almost 100 years. Anyway, great artist, kind of a lame dude when it comes to his personal life. But then I think of even looking, you know, more locally, there, there's a painter who is just a professor, and I can't remember the school he's at right now, but his name is Bruce Herman. And I encountered him as an undergraduate. And Bruce Herman, he's, he's never going to be you know, a huge artist. But as he, I heard him give a talk and saw his work and have basically tried to copy what he does ever since because one, his understanding of the way that art intersects with the work of Jesus on earth was just insane. It was not vague, like we create because God creates. It was tied in with hospitality and presence and absence. And he built in some of the some of the theology of the Trinity into his work. And it was just mind-blowing. But I think also just looking at a man who has decided that, yes, painting is part of his calling. It's a key piece of the image of God that he carries on this earth and that he has developed it 
over decades just doing small shows and taking small teaching positions. And he is, there's no question, he is a master of his craft. The paintings that he does are often triptychs. They're they're panels of three pieces, and they tie in to the history of church art and iconography. But they are just insane where... You know, they'll be 10 feet tall and 8 feet wide, and there'll be these three panels that kind of take up a room. And then he'll do whole paintings and then belt sand them all away and then do another painting and then sand that down and then do another painting. What you end up with is this amount of the working surface and the time of creation being visible, but this end product that reflects kind of the qualities of oil painting and real mastery of mark-making technique. And it What I like about Bruce Herman is that, you know, as an artist, first of all, it's just hard to make things. I think most people who are artists of any kind know that to keep producing is incredibly difficult. Uh, To commit yourself to kind of over several decades becoming a master of something that doesn't really reward mastery. Like you're always going to have whatever, it feels like whatever realm you're in, you're a writer, you're a painter, there's going to be someone who just kind of sweeps onto the scene and it's just and for some reason society chooses them to be their next idol and their art is horrible and they're irritating but they're the person that ends up winning what looks like widespread admiration and I've just seen Bruce Herman just kind of resist the pull and even resist the destructive effects of not becoming a popular artist in order to do his craft in community, to keep making art. He has, I mean, hopefully, encourage you to go, listeners, look at some of his pieces, simply to be impressed by someone who's put together and still building this pretty amazing portfolio, but is kind of content to live in the world where he is, of small painters with great skill, working predominantly in the United States and then also in Italy. But All in all, when I think of being someone who wants to actually keep maturing in my craft, he's one of the people that I have out there is, wow, that he he's doing it. And he's, you know, in the end of his 50s, but his work now displays a level of commitment to a long process that you basically never see in the art world. Yeah, I love the integrity of that as you pursue what you feel you're put to pursue, right? I've been thinking about this comment that you made earlier, John, of when you're young, you seem to have a lot of these people and they're typically whatever movie or sport or whatever you're watching, they're the hero and you want to be the hero and that's good. And I think it's not, as I've been thinking about it though, it's not just this quote unquote like reality hits and you kind of have to find your way through. I think there's also something to this day and age that, I know Padre particularly dislikes, he calls it kind of the expose culture where everything and everyone is just waiting to be debunked. You know, you're like, your hero might've been Lance Armstrong, but woe to you if that was the case when the whole lid was blown on the steroid really kind of industry that um, had become professional cycling. Um, So as you begin to like, it's it's not even it's not even as you begin to get older. It's just these days. It almost is the line that it's, it feels hard to to trust almost into a story. And that's really the the uh, seduction is to not 
want to emulate or to trust because you're like, well, but really, you know, this pastor, great guy. And then you find out the dirty little secrets that take him down. I was just laughing the other day. We have this mattress that we bought for our daughter to sleep on and stitched all over it is organic cotton. Organic cotton. Like, you know, it's just all over the place. And then we turned it over on the back. The ingredients list was 100% um, polyester. polyester. <laughs> and you were like, how can you, what? I, I, I wanted to take a picture of it and show Padre. It could be like, it's not, it's not just that it's a, expose culture it's that honestly there's a lot of stuff you're like how is this how is this okay and i think that's also a piece of this whole battle to have people to emulate because i don't and it's it's key to what we're after here at ansons is that there are ancient paths there are things worth following in there can be more than just men that are cul-de-sacs people that are dead ends brilliant artists that don't just come and disappear and you can never be like them. I mean, it's why self-help books sell so well because you want to be able to emulate these people. So and so the one that comes to mind for me, having said all of that, and part of it's because of the season that I'm in, starting a young family and trying to keep aspects of what I want alive, in this case, being a writer. I remember hearing some of the story of Tolkien's life from Luke, who was taking a class on some writers of that time in college. And everybody knows Tolkien. You're like, yeah, Lord of the Rings, great. So you want to like write the definitive piece of fantasy? Like really? That's, of course you do. Who doesn't want to do that if you like writing or reading fantasy? But actually what struck me about his life was how he, how and when he wrote. He had four children, was a practicing Catholic, was a professor, and had a pretty full life. And in his journals and in some accounts, he would write every day in the evening at 11 o'clock. And that was his window. And he chose to protect it, chose to continue doing it. I don't know for how long, and I, I don't know if, what that season looked like. But when I heard that, there was part of me that was a really good shift from, wow, you've got something really amazing and I'd love to create something amazing to, okay, not only did you create something beautiful and lasting, but he created it in a season that I feel like I'm not even in that tough of a season yet, having a six-month-old feels like a tough season. Keeping your work and your faith and your home life alive feels difficult enough, but then to also make space for the thing that you love and makes you come alive. Like, I want to be that guy. I want to be the guy who my kids talk about in 20 years, and they say, I was so impressed by dad's ability to continue to do things with his time that made his heart come alive and that he knew he had to offer to the world. And I'm afraid of the opposite being the case. Like, yeah, he was a good man and he like put himself on the line for our family and he he burned himself on that altar and didn't have much left over at the end of the day. So when I think of stories I want to emulate like this one, Tolkien's writing, I just had like this, like this mental picture of this house full of children. It's messy. It's bustling. He's got papers to grade. He's going to class early the next morning to teach and he's choosing to stay up. Like I have a hard time staying up that late as is. And yet I, I want that to be true of my story. Yeah, it's really good. I just want to respond to your point of, yes, there is a problem with admiration in a world 
that is sort of riddled with corruption and obsessed with exposing the underlying corruption of every person, every great career, every writer, movement, product. Every company. Every, every company. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things it does is that it misconstrues, it distorts what admiration is. Because, you know, what when you look at people, you're not like, oh, man, I want to be just like that person because— he is perfect. Like, that's never what it was right. meant to in, be. In every way. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, there was even, there was an early church heresy, meaning something that was, it was pointed out that this totally distorted the story of God. Now, this isn't just an accident, like a real heresy that had to do with people leaving church communities when the moral failures of their leaders were exposed. And kind of, you know, some of the early fathers had to come in and be like, hey, listen, the truth of God actually does not depend on the perfection of the people describing it, right? And so you can extrapolate that into other areas of admiration and go like, hey, listen, that artist's ability to display something true about the life of an artist is not contradicted or is not destroyed because that artist also does not live a perfect life. Like, emulation is not replication. So you don't have to be like, oh, man, I like that writer, Ernesto Sabato, but man, his marriage was horrible. So I guess there's no writers. But, you know, to take the piece that actually is there that is telling you something valuable about a person's life. Mm -hmm. You know, I, there were so many guys that that came to mind. And I say guys because I think a lot of it was was men from, I really enjoy, based on true story movies, overcoming hardships, some obstacle. And I was talking to Christine about this the other day, and I said, there's so many, but what I hate is that it's almost like they forsake their family in order to do this valiant thing. And so I, yes, you achieve this, but look what you've left in your wake. And I, I don't like that. La La Land, anybody? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there was one, the one that comes to mind, I can't even remember it. It was a good movie. The guy that invented the uh, inter intermittent wiper on, in the cars, you guys ever see that one? Donald S Wiper. He was quite a guy. That's the guy. And so... I, I gosh, I wish I could remember the name of this film. It was a good movie, but I won't watch it again because the guy ends up like he invents this, tries to sell it to an automotive company. Because imagine this when it rains without the intermittent wiper, it's either you turn your wipers on or you turn them off. It's it's one setting on or off. And it's no like, well, I'm gonna turn them on low and then adjust them up and down, you know, as the rain intensity picks up or decreases. So this guy invents it, tries shopping it around. None of these automakers want it. And then he gives up and then find he patents it and then sees like this car driving down the street with this intermittent wiper. And he was like, I invented that. And he spends, I don't know, the rest of his life fighting in courts against Ford or GM or somebody. And at the same time, like that's all like work, eat, sleep, fight the big auto manufacturer. There's no time left for family. Ends up with a divorce. His kids don't like him. Or that whole story. And so I come back to, well, I mean, I really love that eventually he overcomes this obstacle, but look at what it cost him. And so I love what you, you talked about, Blaine, where it's not like, okay, well, 
I, I admire this guy, but do I have to do it this way or do I, do I have to have all of that? And the answer is no. And it's crazy because that's not like a new thing. I was doing sometimes in preparation of these podcasts, we'll, we'll look for what's been written on this. And what's been written on admiration is so cynical, borderline savage. You know, just to give you a highlight reel, Benjamin Franklin, admiration is the daughter of ignorance. Mina Atrian, uh, another writer, and she wrote, Between flattery and admiration, there often flows a river of contempt. George Sand, admiration and familiarity are strangers. So there's, there's this thing in the world which is like, oh, you think you admire? Well, you don't really know the, the horribleness of the human being. And just to go, actually, I'm very familiar with the fallibility of human beings. What I'm impressed by is the, fa- is the redemptive capability of human beings when they come in, when some part of them comes into alignment with the story of God, especially if the person actually happens to like walk out of life with Jesus. Like, and those are the easiest ones, right? It's Bonhoeffer. Who doesn't like Bonhoeffer, you know? Or C.S. Lewis. Who doesn't like C.S. Lewis? And then people are like, yeah, but I mean, C.S. Lewis. Talk about a guy who couldn't get his sexuality together. And you're like, okay, be that as it may, he actually was able to do all these other things faithfully. So just rapid fire. I'd love to hear nuggets. Uh, Who else was just on your lists? So Tolkien was probably not like a big surprise. People are like, oh yeah, you're picking like all the big names. The next one that came to me actually was my sister-in-law, Rachel. She has a capacity that is super rare and it's to celebrate others' victories. And I found that so refreshing when just being around her or getting a text from her from time to time that normally I just, I won't do it. I, I don't see other people doing it that well, but to that she has the ability to come alongside and hold someone else up and had no fear of that diminishing her or pulling a limelight away from her when it's her time to be celebrated. It's a quality that is rare and I don't see that often. And it's one that I want to emulate and just to like look at someone's life and go, wow, Rachel is phenomenal at celebrating others. And I want more of that in my character. So rapid fire people we actually know. Uh, Mark Weaver is one of the most encouraging people I have ever been around. And I've witnessed uh, his effect on my life and I've witnessed his effect on the lives of the other people in our community. And so like, I, I love that characteristic about that man. So in keeping with the uh, sort of the the real life people uh, is a guy named Dave Eitmiller, who's just perseverance and and just his approach to slowness. We've done some backcountry skiing and running together, but not like, you know, there's there's different types of going out and running. There's short, fast running. And, and I've recently got into the long and slow running because it's kind of my mindset. And... Um, there's just so much to learn there about, about perseverance and, and not about, in fact, when I started running, I don't know, five months ago, I would go out and I would say, well, I'm, I'm running. So I've got to go fast because in my mind, that's what running is. And I think it's, that's so different from what I would have thought, you know, when I was in my early twenties or teens, 
that's what running is, is really fast. And yet if you go out and do these types of distances that I'm just getting into that Dave is teaching me about, running takes on a whole new meaning of slow and steady. And it's, it's the book, right? Slow and steady wins the race. And there's just so much to learn from that. I was afraid one of you guys was going to take mine, my local example, Jim Winnie, friend uh, in our community, happens to be the most expert horseman that I think any of us know. But Jim, one, he is among the most humble people that I know, and not like pretending to be humble or I don't know, like he doesn't like deflect conversations. It's none of that things that are substitutes for humility, like just being shy. He actually is vulnerable with the life of his own heart. Uh, He's interested in hearing the answer to a question that he asks. And he's just kind of slowly moving in his little relational world, having an impact for the kingdom. He and his wife, Fern, are just sort of out there in the ranch country of southwestern Colorado impacting their neighbors, um, volunteering at events that happen here at Ransomed Heart to impact the lives of men and women, and living the lifestyle of these kind of remote agrarian intercessors. But almost any time I have a conversation with Jim Winnie, he's simply so present, and you have the experience of someone bringing their whole heart into a conversation and not trying to show off in his responses— very straightforward speaker, but someone who is always kind of willing to show his story as a site where God has moved as an example in hopes that you will actually experience something good, some kind of transformation in your life. Uh, so one more before I think we bring in for a landing. Um, and this one... <laughs> Blaine Eldridge. No, it's Padre. Like, genuinely. I remember when I graduated from college and I came home, uh, just passing through, that was when we wrote Killing Lines together. I was so struck by how he has structured his life. I think I just had more eyes to see it. There's a Mark Twain quote that I'm going to butcher, but essentially it's something like, when I was 18, my parents knew nothing. Ten years later, I was amazed at how much they had learned. And (laughs) it's really like the eyes that we gain for our parents as we get older. But I remember being home and watching like him getting up early and making himself some tea and having some alone time often on the hill behind our house in nature, spending time with God and then reading either a book that he's been spending time in or something from the Bible. And then he'd go into his office and write and he kind of emerge around the time I would have dragged myself out of bed. And he just seemed to like have this groundedness and this way of walking into the day that I'm like, okay. I want that. How do I get that without doing any of the steps that you're doing? (laughs) How do I just get that? And yet it's something that I, the way that he lives his life is pretty clear in the way that he's able to operate. And so there's something as I get older that I more and more look at that and go, okay, I I want a pace and a structure like that. Um, So I would, I'd, I'd say my wife, Amy, and the reason is, is because she is more herself than anyone I know. Mm. She is unafraid to love the things she loves, and she's unafraid to be the person that she is. 
And that lack of fear inspires so many people. I mean, our kids are amazing because of AB, not because of me. I mean, left to my own devices, I'd be some workaholic, you know, neglecting my kids, I think. But she doesn't just impact our kids. She impacts everyone she comes in contact with. And she knows how to value the things that are truly important. Again, in contrast to me. And so, yeah, huge, Mm. huge admiration there. Yeah, I would echo that about your wife. I know her pretty well, and that's one of the things I've admired about her. I'm going to throw out Ernest Shackleton, Sam, who you mentioned earlier. 1914, I believe it was, he went on a three-year expedition to the South Pole, which was his third expedition. And much like John Wesley Powell went down the Grand Canyon, into the unknown, all that stuff, what, what I admire most about... Shackleton and what I know about this expedition. He took this boat called Endurance. They got stuck in the ice and they drifted uh, until the boat broke up because it was just crushed by this ice. And then they drifted some more and then they finally landed on this island. They were at sea for like 497 days, I think it was. And their their mission was to go to the South Pole was to to right to make landfall there and do that but all of that was abandoned what i admire most is how he as a leader cared for his men over a 3 year period not one single one of them was lost they so drifted in ice landed at this island took one boat and a couple men for like 70 days, I think it was, landed at another island, and then he had to cross over it to get to a whaling station. It had only been crossed by guys on skis before. They're on on uh, foot with like hobnail boots. Immediately get here, turn around, go and pick these guys up on the island, and then go to this other island where everybody else was, pick everybody up alive. On the way back, there was some other expedition that was stuck, and they diverted to go save these guys. And what really amazes me about that spirit is my my singular focus was to get here, but now that that's not happening, the care and focus he put on taking care of of others in the midst of all that is really just mind-boggling. That's fantastic. Not totally unlike that time that Amy Dale saved all those marooned Very sailors. <laughs> Very similar, yes. Trapped on an iceberg. Modern story. I think, uh, just picking off my list here for my last one. But yeah, I'm going to go with uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Not just because, you know, he's the founder of Christian existentialism and a lot of other things, but... It's actually mostly for a moment early in his life. Um, Kierkegaard, brilliant. You know, this is a time when you have to defend your dissertation in Latin. Uh, It's viewed as being the only language that true ideas can transmit in, um, just because all the ideas that survived the Middle Ages happen to be written in Latin. A lot of reasons for that. But he ends up uh, petitioning the king to be allowed to defend his dissertation in Danish. And in so doing, it seems subtle, but he was actually, in what he was trying to do even in his philosophy is he was an advocate for both bringing kind of the life of the mind to everyday people, but also in this very subtle way, he was kind of this people's advocate and going, yep, I'm 
he, he knew, actually, that he was going to be one of the intellectual giants of his time. He was known for being fairly arrogant about that. But at the same time, he was kind of committed to doing these slight things, uh, communicating in a way that everyday people would understand. And therefore, you know, this is making an, a concerted effort to kind of raise the public perception of the everyday person, starting with the language they used and displaying that the language was actually capable of conveying great meaning. And the effects of that, you know, across Northern Europe, even visible in literature, are pretty fascinating. And so I think simply someone who, yes, uh, there's plenty of evidence that Kierkegaard was also a tool in addition to everything else he was, but he also understood that his that he could make decisions about the way he used his gifting that would have consequences immediately for people around them. And he cared enough to make decisions that would benefit that. I mean, if you don't defend your dissertation in Latin and Kierkegaard's time, it's going to limit the opportunities you can have academically. So he did end up leaving the academy. Guys, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Hopefully, uh, for you, our friends listening, this is been helpful in thinking about the discipline of admiration and what it actually looks like uh, to begin to cultivate on purpose this kind of looking at in wonder, looking at in respect, people who are living in a way, not that you want to replicate exactly, but that tell you something about the way that you're hoping to walk out your calling, gifting, uh, maybe even just a quiet season in your life. Yeah. And I want to say that it's okay. Um, and probably really revealing if it takes a while to put some names on paper. It did for us. And that's a really good indication that you have a need for it. Thanks for listening to the podcast today, guys. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we hope that you might send this along to someone in your world. I'm not asking for a five-star rating or a review. Rather that if something about this podcast struck you that you might pass this off to somebody that you think would really enjoy it. Looking for more? Good news. There is a new issue of Anson's Magazine. If you're listening to this after October 10th, if it's before October 10th, you can just wait. And there's always the chance we might be late. Sometimes we send you guys over to social media to keep up with us, but so little really happens on social media now. That's kind of a moot point. And make sure you keep your eyes peeled for our films rolling out in the fall. See you guys next week.